Good morning. My name is Matthew. I'm a member here at Arlington Baptist Church, and I'm delighted to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you're a guest here with us this morning, this is the part of our service where we open God's Word, we read it, and we explain how it applies to our lives today. So, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 1. You can find that on page 793 in your pew Bible. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray now that your word would reverberate in open ears and penetrate tender hearts by the power of your spirit. Help us to see our sin and the glory of your son. Give us the power to turn from our evil ways and deeds and turn to you in faith and repentance. Lord, give me clarity as I speak. May your sheep hear your voice and believe it for their everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Conversions of all kinds are commonplace in our world today. Alcoholics turn from drunkenness to sobriety. Westerners, afflicted with boredom, renounce their way of life and turn to Eastern gurus to find meaning. One person joins a cult and closes the door on his prior way of life. Another looks for the power latent within and turns away from institutional religion. More frequently headlined in Christian press today are deconversions, sometimes called deconstructions. Former professing Christians turn away from the faith they once believed, the gospel they once proclaimed, the church that they once knew. Often these deconversions are precipitated by dramatic crises. Maybe it's a pastor who had a moral failing, or parents who committed adultery and divorce, or a close friend who turned away first and then encouraged them to come along for the journey. Or perhaps it is the tra tragic experience of abuse at the hands of those 
entrusted to love and care for them, body and soul. Still, sometimes there is no crisis moment, but simply the love of the world and the desires of the flesh that lures them away. But whatever the cause, the result is changed beliefs, changed behaviors, a clear and decisive turn away from the Word of God, away from the Gospel of God, away from the Son of God, and a turn to something else. Everything from New Age mysticism to lavish hedonism to full-blown skepticism. This propensity to turn away from the Lord has marked us ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned away from God's Word and believed the serpent. In fact, as we read the Bible's story, we see time and time again that we ourselves are prone to wander and go our own way. Like our first parents, we have incurred the anger of the Lord by turning away from Him. And as the Lord turned Adam and Eve away from the Garden of Eden, so the Lord must turn away from us because of our sin. We see this even in our passage this morning. Zechariah was a prophet ministering to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And through Zechariah, God was calling his people back to the covenant relationship that he had established with them, a relationship marked by faithful, loyal love, trust, and obedience. And Israel's ancestors had turned away from loyalty to their Lord. They hedged their bets with false gods, and their lives were filled with injustice. And even though God sent multiple prophets to call His people back to Him, they refused to repent. And so the Lord exiled that generation. But God had not turned away from His people forever. By His mercy and in fulfillment of prophecy, He had brought a new generation back to Jerusalem. He raised up a new prophet. Zechariah called the people to learn from the sins of their fathers, to break from the bad past into a blessed future by returning once more to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to us through Zechariah today. Our ways and our deeds are evil. And yet rather than immediately turn against us in anger, the Lord graciously calls us to turn to Him for mercy. We must listen to His word today and return to the Lord. And if we return, God will return to us. That's the big idea that I want us to believe today. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and He will turn to you. Or to say it negatively, if you don't turn, the Lord will turn against you. But how would Zechariah teach us to return to the Lord? What does it mean to repent? That's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. I want to turn our attention to four matters of repentance. And if you embrace these four matters from God's Word, the Lord will turn your life around for His glory. First, we'll see the message of repentance. Then we'll consider the motives of repentance. Then the manner of repentance. And finally, the moment of repentance. So first, the message of repentance. Look at verses 1 through 3. 
In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Darius was the Persian king ruling at this time. Two kings earlier, Cyrus decreed that the exiled Jews in Babylon could return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That was in 536 BC. There's not going to be a quiz on this. However, some adversaries rose up to oppose the rebuilding effort. They discouraged the people. They frustrated their efforts. They even wrote false accusations against them. And the temple building came to a standstill that lasted about 15 years. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 4. But then in 520 BC, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah began to prophesy to the Jews and encourage them. And both men called the people to repent. Fifteen years had passed, and the temple, the place where the Lord's presence dwelt in the Old Covenant, it remained unfinished. And so Haggai and Zechariah called Israel to put God first and get on with rebuilding. See, here's the thing. The people... They were back in the land. But the fundamental problem that led to the exile, which was namely sin, not putting God first in their hearts, that still persisted. God had gotten the people out of Babylon, but He had not gotten Babylon out of the people. And the book of Zechariah addresses that problem. Zechariah, we see, comes from a family of prophets. His name means Yahweh remembers. And in verse 3, we see the heart of his message. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. This is a sovereign imperative. Three times in verse 3, five times in our passage, 53 times in the book, we see this title, Lord of hosts, or Lord of armies. Yahweh is the commander-in-chief. He's the five-star general. This is no mere suggestion or self-help advice to improve our lives. It's a command invested with the authority and majesty of the sovereign Lord of all. It's a sovereign imperative. But notice it's also a sweet invitation. From this verse, we might be tempted to conclude that God does not move first towards us unless we first move toward Him. But the text doesn't allow this. Right? Because we never would have thought of turning back to God in repentance had the Lord not drummed the idea into our heads. The Lord takes the initiative to call us back into a renewed relationship with Him. Jesus fulfilled this. Seeing how no Redeemer could be found in Adam's helpless race, the Son of God became a human like us that He might save us. Jesus began his ministry by declaring, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The apostles made repentance the bedrock of their preaching. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This invitation applies to all people. Do you think you're too wicked to be restored to God? That He couldn't possibly want you to turn back to Him. The Lord corrects our thinking. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Friends, the Lord wants you. He wants you to come back. We ought not stay away when the Lord bids us to come. As a brother reminded me last week, what a, what a comforting thought it is that even when mired in our sin, the Lord tells us that His grace is sufficient. So return to Him and enjoy Him in the fullness of His grace. Church, brothers and sisters, this message of repentance has been entrusted to us. The Apostle Paul wrote, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This means we need to get our message right. I think when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, the evangelical church tends to be comfortable talking about faith, but is a little less clear when talking about repentance. I hear well-meaning brothers and sisters say things like, you know, having Jesus in your life would make things so much better. It's not that your life is so bad now, but it would just be so much better with Jesus. So I encourage you to go and to pray and ask Jesus to come into your life and see what happens. Now, can God respond graciously to a prayer like that? Yes, I believe he can. But that's where where that becomes dangerous is when someone assumes that by just praying a prayer like that, that they've become a Christian. That they've actually received Christ and believed the biblical gospel. If we don't present the gospel in such a way that we include the necessary response of repentance, we might lead people into thinking they're Christians when they're not. They may have a vague sense that Jesus is necessary to help them with their problems, and often those problems are defined by them, but they haven't really understood the problem of their sin, the penalty of God's wrath and their need for a substitute. When Jesus issued the Great Commission, He did not tell his followers to go into all the world and ask people to raise their hands and sign decision cards. He commanded them to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So we're called to an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of one another. To the end that every aspect of our lives is supernaturally reoriented and turned back to God. So practically... We ought to praise God that he sends people after us too, like Zechariah, when we are in need of returning. I thank the Lord when he sends a brother or sister to confront you. Don't despise those who call you to repentance. Rather, discern God's gracious invitation through them. Husbands and wives, cultivate a culture of repentance in your marriage. Be quick to say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness and change. Be quick to forgive. Parents, model repentance. Right? If you sin against your kids, repent to your kids. Show what it means to humble yourself. Confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Model the Lord's grace to your children. Right? Are your children terrified of coming to you when they've disobeyed? Or do they know that if they turn to you in repentance that you will turn to them in mercy and love? The first matter of repentance is grasping the Lord's message. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, and He will turn to you. Now you may be thinking, okay, 
I grasp the message. I need to repent and return to the Lord. But why should I repent? We need to grasp the motives of repentance. And the Lord gives two massive motives in our text. The first is to escape God's fury. Verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? God was extremely angry with the parents whom he exiled. And if you ask, why is he so angry? Here's why. The Lord called them to repent again and again through the earlier prophets. He sent judgments to discipline them. He allowed famines, withheld rain, struck them with pestilences, sent plagues like those in Egypt, killed their young men through foreign armies, and overthrew them like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, like an unfaithful wife, Israel turned away from the Lord who loved them and turned to idolatry and injustice. Nothing worked to penetrate their cold hearts. And so the Lord brought the covenant curses upon the nation. And he deported them, he destroyed their temple, and he exiled them to Babylon. And friends, if that was how the Lord treated his covenant people in a temporary exile, how much worse will be the eternal exile? How much worse will be the Lord's final fury? The Lord will be extremely angry with you if you don't repent. His words and statutes will overtake you. And again, if you think that's harsh, consider the words of the children in verse 6. So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The people acknowledged that they, they received what they deserved. You see, God's anger issues out of his holiness. God is perfectly holy. He cannot abide sin. The objects of his wrath are those who oppose him, those who travel the path of wickedness. And because God is righteous, his anger is just. It's never capricious, never arbitrary, but always legitimate and deserved. You see, the Lord is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Imagine if your son came to you and said, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. I've turned to a new dad who will let me do what I want. You'd be angry and grieved. And you would do everything to call your son back to you. Because see, the Lord is also a merciful and gracious God. Patient and slow to anger. He gives us a way of escape. Jesus took God's righteous fury upon himself. The famous verse, John 3.16, God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And that's the other motive in our passage, isn't it? To enjoy God's favor. It's there in verse 3. Return to me and I will return to you. 
Do you, do you see it? Return to me. Come to me. Yes, return to my law. Return to my word. Return to my statutes. But most of all, return to me. Now, of course, repentance involves turning from sinful behavior. But the Lord wants to restore His relationship with His people. He wants us to turn from false gods, false lovers, false pathways to joy, and turn to Him and be saved and enjoy Him for who He is. Our greatest motivation to repent is not damnation or sense of duty, but delight in God Himself. Do you turn to God because you want the benefits that He offers or because He's your treasure? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you love the Lord? Test yourself this morning. Do you want to turn to God because you like what He has to offer you? He'll get me out of hell. He'll give me eternal life in a perfect world. He'll give me purpose and meaning in my life in this world. All good things, all true benefits. But do you want those things while enjoying God Himself as an afterthought? So when I say enjoy God's favor, don't mishear me. We cannot receive God's gifts but reject the giver. The supreme favor is God's gift of Himself. And note the promise if we repent, and I will return to you. Repentance is a gift of God that comes to us through the proclamation of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So whatever repentance is, ultimately, like with every other element of salvation, it's a gift of God. It's not something we can do in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own holiness, our own power. This is something God must work in our hearts and our lives. And this guards us from thinking that repentance is something that I must do to earn salvation. This is why I think some Christians are uncomfortable with making repentance a requirement for salvation. Because they're worried that if we introduce this as a requirement for salvation, that we're introducing some kind of work. Right? Something that I must do, something that I must offer to God that kind of commends myself to Him so that He would save me. But in fact, repentance is a gift that God has given to us. It's not something that we conjure up on ourselves. And that's why I said, enjoy God's favor, not earn it. Repentance doesn't merit God's favor. Only Jesus can do that. But repentance places us on the pathway to enjoy God's favor. The second matter of repentance is grasping the Lord's motives. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, and He will turn to you. You'll escape God's fury, and you can enjoy God's favor forever. Okay, so I know that I need to repent, and why I should repent. How do I do it? We need to grasp the manner of repentance. The Lord gives us this wonderful image of turning. Repentance is not so much a change of direction as it is a change of loyalty. It's turning from loyalty to self and sin 
and Satan and turning in loyalty to the sovereign and all-satisfying Savior. So let's reflect, reflect briefly on the nature of that turn. Repentance is a full turn. Right? We must turn from all sin. Verse 4, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Right? No part of our lives that we kind of hold back. Right? We must not be like that man who wouldn't follow Jesus because he wanted to turn back home and finish his business. We cannot say, God, I will give you everything but my finances, my checkbook, that's my money. I do without as I want. Lord, I submit my life to you, but my sexuality is something that I'm not willing to give up. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, but that whole business of gathering with your people every Sunday on the Lord's Day, I'm just not willing to give up my weekend sports. The Lord demands our complete allegiance. Like the, like the great hymn says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Repentance is a full turn. It's also a fervent turn. Right? We must turn from the heart. Repentance involves our minds, our affections, and our wills. And here I was helped by one of my former pastors, John Kimball, three R's of, of a fervent turn. Responsibility. We must take responsibility for the wrong we've done. Right? We must agree with God about our sin. You see that in verse 6. As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Right? They owned it. It's easier for us to denounce sin in the abstract, to denounce the sins of other people, and yet not be penitent regarding our own sin. We must understand certain things to be true about our sin. One, right, that we have it. And two, that there is a manifold evil that characterizes our sin. Our statement of faith uses the language of being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness. I love that wording. Right? It has a right tone to it. Psalm 32.5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David says, I'm no longer trying to hide my sin. I'm not trying to cover it. Now, I think a lot of times before we're converted, we may not think we're consciously doing this, but in reality, we are. We're trying to cover our sin. Not acknowledge it. Not see it for what it really is. And what it is, is evil. When we set ourselves up against the perspective of God's Word, we need to realize we take our sin so lightly. And I think this is true for us even as Christians. I think we only grasp in some small measure the magnitude of our offense against God for failing to love Him for who He is, to trust Him for His promises, to depend on Him for our needs. And beyond that, we actively actually oppose and disobey His commands for our life. We dishonor Him in the way that we live. Think about this. Our sin is so wicked that an eternity of conscious punishment in hell will not satisfy the wickedness of it. That's tough to grasp, isn't it? The depth of our sin. Even in this sense, our repentance in this life will be imperfect. Right? We won't fully and completely and perfectly understand and grasp the magnitude of our sin. And yet, genuine repentance 
requires in some measure that we do grasp the wickedness and the evil of our sin. We've got to take responsibility for it. But we must also have true remorse for doing wrong and for the pain and the problems that we've caused. We must hate our sin and what it does, that it robs God of His glory, that it harms others, that it destroys us. Right? It's not enough to just have an intellectual understanding of our sin, that we just kind of think academically about it. There needs to be a personal sorrow and brokenness over it. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who, seemed to, who pretty clearly seemed to grasp their sin, pretty clearly seemed to grasp what was going on in their heart? They're pretty good at analyzing and talking about it. They can talk about the things that they're loving and they shouldn't love. They can talk about ways that they're not trusting God the way they should trust God. They can talk about where their priorities are misplaced. But then there's no genuine sorrow for it. And maybe even that as you're trying to probe and help them, that there's almost a pride. Hey, I, I know my sin. I see it for what it is. But there's not a brokenness over it. That's a fearful place to be. You can actually see your sin and you're not grieved by it. That's where the fathers were. They did not hear or pay attention to me. And notice, this is different than just being sad about the consequences of our sin. Right? Sin often, for believer and unbeliever alike, brings misery and heartache and struggle and difficulty into our lives. And we don't like it. When I'm a passive husband and it brings relational tension with my wife, I don't like that. But feeling sorry and sad about the tension in my marriage is different from feeling sorrow over the fact that my passivity fails to honor God, fails to serve my wife, fails to present the picture of Jesus Christ that's intended to be portrayed in my marriage. Right? I just want to avoid the disapproval and the strife. So if I'm caught telling a lie, caught viewing pornography, I'm confronted with my laziness, or I'm confronted with my anger, I need to not just be sad because this brings difficult circumstances into my life. I need to have a godly grief over the evil of my sin, over the offense that it is to God, over the offense that it is to those around me and the harm it can bring them. That's different from self-pity. Right? There's a turning outward and recognizing how I've offended God, dishonored Him, and hurt others, rather than simply turning inward in self-pity. The Bible actually talks about a worldly grief that does not lead to salvation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we need to examine ourselves. Am I sad? Am I sorrowful? Am I grieving in this situation? because of what my sin is and the offense it is to God? Or am I just sad about my circumstances? And that will help us distinguish genuine repentance versus simple worldly sorrow. But even as we must feel this way about ourselves and about our sin and genuine repentance, we also need to say genuine repentance doesn't just stall out there. That's not our landing place. That would just lead to despair, to hopelessness, to depression, but instead, in genuine repentance, there is a resolve. 
a resolve to turn away from our sin and to walk before God in obedience. We resolve not to repeat the act regardless of the temptations or situation. Repentance doesn't say, I should, or I need to, or I ought to, or I plan to. Repentance says, I will. Like the prodigal who came to himself, right? I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And praise God that by his grace, this is actually possible by his spirit in the grace of the gospel. If you're stalling out in that sorrow over your sin, hear this. This is the good news of the gospel. That by God's grace, you can actually turn from that sin and seek to walk in newness of life. This is what happens when we're born again, right? We turn away from our sin and we turn in obedience to God. Again, we don't do this perfectly, right? If we did, we'd be sinless and we wouldn't need to repent. But we do this genuinely and we must do this genuinely if we are to be saved, right? This is our intention and our goal, our resolve. But here's our problem, right? No amount of resolve can undo the damage that we've done against God. No amount of tears, apologies, law-keeping, or good works can undo the evil we've done. And so God himself must repair the damage. And that's why repentance is not only a full turn from all sin, it's not only a fervent turn from the heart, but it's also a faith turn. We must turn from our sin and we must turn to Christ. Not everybody is saved from God's wrath just because Christ died for sinners. The benefits purchased by the death of Christ belong to those who repent and believe in Him, trusting in Him alone. Right? Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. One side is tails. You turn tail on the rotten fruits of unbelief. And the other side is heads. You head straight for Jesus and receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. You can't have the one without the other any more than you can face two ways at once or serve two masters. You won't find genuine faith without repentance and you won't find genuine repentance without faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you might be asking, why Jesus Christ? Where's that in the text? And this is why we need to read the Old Testament as Christians. When the Lord says, return to me, we need to hear the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When the Lord says, I will return to you, we need to hear the words of 1 John 4.14. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. There is no one else God has sent. There is no one else who can be our substitute. Either we will bear God's just anger against our sin, or Christ will bear it for us. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on Him. So we must turn in faith to Christ. And repentance is a final turn. We must turn with no return. We cannot be like the man who told Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We must be all in for all of life. 
As Luther said, the life of a Christian is one of continual repentance. So repentance is initial and it's ongoing. Right? There is a moment in time where before there was no repentance and now there's true belief and true repentance. And at that moment there is salvation. But as with faith, it's not just a one-time thing that you do and then you move on. Remember, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he told them that daily they should pray for the forgiveness of their sins. Daily we need to be recognizing our sin and turning from it and seeking forgiveness from the Lord. Part of what it means for us to live out the gospel day by day is that we recognize our sin daily. We're grieved over our sin. We purpose and resolve in our will to turn away from it. And we experience the grace and forgiveness of Christ as we do so. That is an ongoing thing that we do as Christians. And on the flip side of that, if we're confronted with our sin and there's not a response in our hearts in an ongoing way of repentance, then we should be concerned. We shouldn't be putting our confidence in, well, I repented of my sin and I was saved, but now I'm being confronted with my sin today and I'm not responding with repentance. Well, then we should be concerned with the reality of our repentance and our faith in Christ. And this is where, to get the full picture here, we've got to keep repentance and faith together. We don't just turn from our sin to a life of obedience to be saved. Right? That's legalism. Our turning from sin is put together with saving faith. We turn to Christ. We receive and rest on Him alone for justification and eternal life. But then out of that flows a resolve to walk in obedience. There's an intention in our will to not sin anymore, to forsake it, to leave it behind and to lead a life of obedience to God. Another way of saying this is that we're no longer at peace with our sin. Not any of it, not even the smallest measure. We don't justify it. We don't take pleasure in it. Instead, we agree with God about His perspective on it. We're grieved by it. And we seek to fight against it together. I like this counsel from the Scottish preacher, William Arnott. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sin. And that's a great description of repentance. The foundation of that fight from beginning to end is our free and full acceptance with God on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. Right? That's why Arnott can say, you take part with a reconciled God. This is how you start this fight. You don't clean yourself up. You don't get your act together first and then you're reconciled to God. You're reconciled to God and then that's the basis for fighting against sin. This is the repentance that leads to life and salvation. So if you turn to the Lord, the Lord will turn to you. We will never finally or totally turn away because the Lord will never turn away from us. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Repentance is final. So we've seen the message of repentance, the motives of repentance, and the manner of repentance. And now it's time for the moment of repentance. Look at verse 4. Do not be like your fathers. 
to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Zechariah is saying, your fathers are gone. The former prophets, they're gone. I'm a prophet now. <laughs> Will you listen to me now? This is the moment of decision. This is the moment of reckoning. Pay attention now. Repent now. And how do they respond? Verse 6. They repented. They said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us. They returned to the Lord. They didn't, they didn't hedge their bets. They didn't hesitate. They heard the word of the prophet and they repented. They turned from their sin. They trusted the promise of the Lord's return. And the rest of this book is full of wonderful visions and prophecies of how the Lord will keep His promise. How He would return to His people and bless them through His Messiah. Friends, consider this example of this generation of Jews. They had a date. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, they can look back to this moment in time and say, that's when the Lord spoke to us through His prophet, and that's when we repented and returned to the Lord. Are you hearing what the Lord is saying through His prophet today? Are you paying attention? When will you return to the Lord? Dio Moody warns, If God's today be too soon for thy repentance, thy tomorrow may be too late for God's acceptance. Don't put off repentance another day, another hour, another moment. Many are now in hell that purposed to repent. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now God has a mind to show mercy to the penitent. Now the Lord of armies hangs forth his white flag to receive and pardon sinners. Swear allegiance to the Lord now. Turn from your sin now. Turn to the Lord now. And he will turn to you right now. Hear this exhortation from Hebrews 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And every transgression, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, see how the Lord treated His own people. Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. Right? Those words are especially for you. If God hates sin enough to punish even His own people, what do you think will happen to you? If God allowed His chosen people Israel, the elect nation of His own love and purpose, to fall to the sword, to be dragged off in chains, and the city and its temple reduced to ruin. What will be your fate if you continue to rebel, you who have no such claim upon his affection? The lesson is clear. You must repent at once. Lay down your rebellion. 
Turn from your evil ways and deeds. Turn from your sin and turn to this God of grace who offers everyone salvation through the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. If you repent and turn to Him in faith, your sins will be forgiven on the spot. And you will enter into everlasting life. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, but you've been running from God. You've wandered off the path of following Jesus. You've turned again to your own way. You've not put God first in your heart. Remember the history lesson of the fathers. Your sin will not bring blessing, but ruin. However sweet its deceptive song rings in your ears. If you persist in sin, you will at the least bring upon yourself God's chastisement. And at the worst, you will prove that you have not really believed at all. Ultimately to reap the destruction that you are now sowing with the seeds of sin. But God calls you today to come back to Him. He will restore you. He will renew you. And He will embrace you once again in His loving arms. In fact, this invitation from God speaks grace to every Christian. Every day. Backslidden or not. In the ups and downs of our spiritual lives, how wonderful to see God's open arms encouraging continual repentance and trust. Maybe you're a believer, but you're struggling to persevere and keep turning to the Lord, right? The war, the war against sin is hard. It's long. You feel the weight of your wickedness. You're weary of the battle. Keep returning to the fountain. John Murray counsels, Christ's blood is the labor of initial cleansing but it is also the fountain to which the believer must continuously repair. You will never regret coming to Him one more time. Keep returning to the Lord. He will return to you and strengthen you to the end. And I know this because the Lord always keeps His promises. He promised to return to His people, and He did that by coming to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took on our humanity. All his ways were perfect. All his deeds were righteous. He never rebelled. He never turned astray. He perfectly obeyed his Father. And he even willingly laid down his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to bear God's righteous wrath against our sin, and he turned it away forever. And now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by this man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So wherever you are today, the Lord Jesus calls you, return to me and I will return to you. Don't turn away from him. There is no real favor, no true salvation, no everlasting life, no certain hope apart from Jesus Christ. The pardon and peace of God is through this man. The forgiveness and favor of God, the fullness of grace and life, is through this man. Come to the Father, through Jesus the Son. Turn to Him, trusting in His shed blood and perfect righteousness as all you need to be right in God's sight. One day the Lord Jesus will return again, and He will judge the living and the dead. All who do not turn from their sin and trust in Him will perish. The Lord Jesus will turn against them in His anger forever. 
But everyone who turns to Christ now, in penitent faith, will be saved. God will turn to us in mercy. And he'll turn his face to us. All things will turn to our good. Mercies and sufferings. And we will enjoy him forever. Let's pray together.